Today's interview is brought to you by Algorand. You'll be hearing more about them as well as Decipher 2022, their event in Dubai, later on in the show. But for now, let's get on with today's interview. Really happy to welcome Mike McGlone, Senior Research Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Jack. My title is now macro strategist. I don't know if that means much different, but we'll, our goal is to try to figure out markets. Thanks for having me. I, it's my pleasure, Mike. Macro is what we do here. So you are the man for the job. And this is the time for the job. We are recording at 2 p.m. on Tuesday, November 8th. And there is a breakdown that started in the crypto markets that's kind of developing into the commodity markets as well. And I say you're the man for the job because what you write about is commodities and crypto. So, Mike, how are you making sense of this turmoil? Yes. Yeah, so the news came out about Binance by an FTX, which is quite the surprise. Sam Bankman-Fried was couple months ago, it was called the JP Morgan of the space buying up all assets. So that's a bit of a shock. The key fact is Bitcoin's breaking down. It's broken, broken below 19,000, which was, it's basically right now, if it closes here, it'll be the closest, lowest weekly close since December, 2020. So the key fact is it's triggering dominoes. It's such a unique time of year. I mean, it's November. We basically got one month left of trading. It's triggering the macroeconomic downloads. Crude oil's hovering, unched on the day. Now it's dropped 2%. The stock market's giving back gains. Um, it's, it's, it's the significance of this new asset, um, which has become, I think, one thing that really became profound this year is Bitcoin. Everybody realizes there is no more significant leading indicator that trades 24 seven on a global basis than Bitcoin. Now, Ethereum's in there too, but it's Bitcoin's a big dog and it's breaking down. And I'm afraid it's going to hit those sell stops that everybody's on the cusp of hitting for the end of the year. Cause this has been the great reversion of risk assets of 2022. It's going to be historic. And when we got a few months left, and I'm afraid what we're talking about right now is the trigger to get through the midterms that, and CPI that breaks markets down rather than as a lot of people are hopeful that they would recover. And I think it's more likely this is the trigger that says we're going down. We're seeing the most significant Federal Reserve rate hikes and tightening of financial conditions in my lifetime. That's since 80s. Um, and since I've been in markets, we're seeing the most significant um, coordination of central bank tightening ever. And that's with the sole purpose of pressuring asset prices and pressuring inflation so it goes lower. So everything is correlated at the moment. And the number one thing you learn in markets is there's no more powerful force in everything when, than when the stock market goes down hard. The key thing to remember about cryptos is they were the fastest horse in the race. They went up the most. Now they're going down the most. But the, thing, the key thing that's just happening now this week as we tilt towards the end of the year is Everything's starting to break down. Crypto's been the leading indicator. The Fed's going to be tightening more. The world's heading towards a recession. Our Bloomberg economics team, Anna Wong, has her recession probability model for the next year is 100%. And what does that mean for risk assets? The thing is, in the past, when we heard these kind of things, we'd say, oh, the Fed's easy and it's going to ease. Not the case. So that's what's significant now is the sledgehammer is pounding hard. Markets are just starting to break down. And I think what we're going to see now is the tone set for the end of for next year. And um, it's key thing is sentiment was, oh, maybe we'll get that bounce. But real reality is this biggest risk, um, you know, ask risk a reversion. Um, the great reversion of 2022 looks like it's not going to go out like a lamb. Looks like it's going to go out like a lion. Um, and that makes sense. Now, the key thing that's 
really been leading this is the key thing we learned this year is Bitcoin has been a great leading indicator. You can see it trade on weekends. It's doing it today. It's been in the first markets to head lower. It's doing that. But the key sector that's the most kind of out of whack, that's commodities. Commodities really have to break down, if history is a guide, show deflationary forces, help the market reset, help markets reset, show lower prices like they almost always have in global recessions, and help the central banks, help inflation, and certainly in this case, help central banks ease up on their tightening. That's the key thing. We need those leading market indicators to break down, not just the stock market. So I think that's what's going to be happening. I still have been making that call on crude oil. It's going to go down a lot. But the problem with commodities, if they don't go down, it keeps the central banks' restraint and tightening in place, and it keeps risk assets under pressure. So you see what's, it's like the lose-lose situation. The key thing I want to bring us back to is right now, this is the fact that we've had this um, Binance situation where they might buy FTX and they might not, but it looks like they are going to be. That's a bit of a shock. And um, it's just trickling down. It's the domino effect. And that's one thing you learn in big markets. It's a, it's a, the quote I used to use in the trading pits. We used to use them with my friends. It was called GMTFO, get me the heck out. And that's it. It's hitting stops or hitting triggers across the whole space. And the cryptos are just a good example. They're like, um, right now it's not real time, but the S&P 500 was up almost a percent as we're speaking. Now it's almost down on the day in crypto. Bitcoin was the first one who kind of gave us that indicator today. Hmm. And yeah, Mike, do you have any insight? The story is developing so quickly. Only hours ago was it announced that uh, Binance would likely had a lever intent to buy FTX. What is the core trouble there with, with FTX? I understand it was their Alameda research arm, but everything to me makes sense from the things I've heard in the past. Cross-holding of assets, what you heard about what happened with Terra Luna, and some of these silly things that humans do when they get greedy. And then you flush them out. So I don't know the details. I bet you can explain it to your listeners better than I do. I look at it as what's the macro implications of this. And um, to me, that's more important what this means for all risk assets. And let's put it this way. We, we're, 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 no, we're taping on November 8th. We're going to air on November 10th. That's really only one good month left of trading in the year. And I think we're at that point where the big money in the world is right on the cusp of hitting their stops of real selling in the stock market. And the point is the market's down on the year 20% and the S&P 500, NASDAQ's 33%. And the fact that central banks are increasing their tightening is not a good sign for what people have been accustomed to the last 40 years, particularly the last 10 years that the Fed was there to save your back. Cryptos are a small part of it. So right now, cryptos are maybe less than a trillion dollars of assets. They were two trillion a little while ago, but global equities have dropped 30 trillion this year. That's the macro. The thing is coming out ahead of it, this matters. The point is coming out ahead is gonna be much more delayed now. I fully expect cryptos will outperform um, in the bigger picture and Bitcoin will outperform once we get to this enduring deflationary recession, which is my base case. Um, and the problem is you can't, we're nowhere near that problem. We're seeing a cusp in decline in global, global GDP. We're nowhere nearing seeing an end of hiking expectations. We're still in early days. And what has to happen typically is you need to see a lower plateau in risk assets. The key thing is what's the leading risk asset on the planet right now? Bitcoin. So in the world of commodities, tell us if recessions cause commodity prices to collapse, how come the slowdown in in economic growth this year has 
actually occurred not just while commodities fall, but actually commodities have, have shot forward. And yeah, how how bearish are you on the commodity complex? You know, which is you know, the, the Bloomberg commodity is roughly like thirty percent. Uh, energy, so oil, natural gas. We got some gold in there. We got some livestock, some agricultural stuff. Yeah, and uh, just what, what are you the most the most bearish on, and why? So um, the most significant Jack is crude oil. And that's this unique thing about crude oil. Those of us who grew up in the '70s and remember those crises is spiking energy can cause global economic recession. Repeat, this just happened this year. Now, the spike in energy really started last year, but clearly a pretty significant recession in Europe on energy crisis. And a lot of that's just been poor management. Obviously, the war in Russia, but the dependence on fossil fuels from Russia. Now, the good news is we're going to get out of this ahead. Five years from now, we'll look back and say, we just don't need those anymore. But the point is, they can cause the recessions, and then they can help alleviate the recession. So the biggest sore thumb in commodities is the fact that crude oil is still up about 20% on the year. Now, that's today. In a couple of days, it might be different. Um, but it's reverting rapidly. And until or unless crude oil drops, typically drops its cost of production in the U.S. That's $40 a barrel, so maybe it gets to 50 That's going to make it a worst global economic recession scenario. Now, with scenario. now, demand destruction is very clear. We pointed this out. China, crude oil imports have declined. Now, people blame that on COVID restrictions, but we've been watching the property crisis for years. And our, our Bloomberg economics team says this is another 25% to go on that property prices. So that's a big macro factor. You look at U.S. unleaded gas demand rolled over in June. That's the prime driving season. I remember seeing this in 2008. 2008 was my best trading year ever, but I suffered horribly in 2007 because he saw it too early and I was too early. And oh, well, that just happens. This, I don't trade anymore. I just say it. That's one thing I do is I really respect those of our listeners and viewers who do it. I just say it. And that's kind of a unique spot because I'm neutral. I don't have any bias either way. I just want to point out facts and get it right. But that's the unique thing about what crude oil has done. It's proved its relevance. It's proved it's going to be redundant um, because it's making the world say, oh, we don't need it anymore. We're in the biggest retooling of automotive manufacturers ever towards EVs. But the key thing to remember is the world's most significant demand importer of crude oil 10 years ago, the U.S., is now a net exporter, a net exporter of energy, LNG, and a major competitor to OPEC. We used to be uh, um, a, uh, a, a customer. So that's what's shifted in the world. Um, and it, it's just one of those things that takes a while. Um, but right now, I think the bottom line, my base case is I think we are in the midst of the, one of the biggest global economic resets of our lifetimes. And it's just getting started. It happened on the back of the biggest pump in liquidity, on the back of a 100-year plague, and now we're in the biggest dump in liquidity. And there's no signs of that stopping at the moment until we reach a lower plateau and something at least makes the Fed stop tightening. No, we're even near that. That's the problem, and that's what we're facing as we head towards the end of this year. And with Bitcoin breaking down and with more problems showing up in cryptos, which we oftentimes see in markets that get over leveraged, um, that's just indication of everything. The whole domino is trickling down and just crypto is a leading indicator. So the key question is, well, how do we get out of this right now? I don't know. But in the bigger picture, I have to always end in a positive note. The way I see this in the macro is we're going to look back at this as finally we're out of those days where every time the stock market was down 20%, you had to be bullish because the Fed was there to save you. And the only thing that mattered was the Fed. We're going to go back to those good old days for an enduring period where good news will be good news and bad news will be bad news. We're still in that period like, oh boy, um, you know, if, if um, you know, unemployment comes out 
you know, weaker than expected, we're not losing enough jobs, then that's bad. So it's, it's, um, it, it's just part of the reset. The thing is, it's early days. Right. Mike, if you look at the forward interest rate curve, so right now on November 8th, after last week's FOMC meeting, uh, interest rates are basically at 4%. 4% is the ceiling for, for rates. The forward projection implies that by spring of next year in 2023, the highest we'll get to is maybe 5%, maybe 5, 25%, but that it's not going to, interest rates are not going to crash back to zero. You know, by 2024 or 2025, interest rates will still be in the mid to high 4%. In other words, higher for longer. That's the sort of short way to put it. Do you buy higher for longer? Or do you think that, you know, if this, we have this steep global re- recession, that the Fed will eventually need to cut if we have a deflationary recession? That's part of my base case for this global, enduring, long-dated global economic um, contraction that's going to be the worst of our lifetimes. Because the ease of easing we've seen from the Fed since the 1987 stock market crash, and most notably since the financial crisis, is over. We've learned the lessons of too much liquidity and inflation, and that's not going to happen. So the next time we hear... Um, people like Kramer jumping on TV and saying, oh, Fed's got to do something. The Fed will say, sorry, we learned that lesson. We will not be easing until whites are uh, the eyes of deflation is clear. Norio Rubini says they're going to wimp out. I agree with him, but I look at, I, I like, you know, Fed funds futures. I used to trade these in the pits. I see Fed fund futures for right now. It's, you know, 4%. You look at uh, no decent of next year. It's just the peak is around 5% around July, and then it looks like they're supposed to be declining into 2024. Now, our chief um, rate strategist, Iris Jersey, who has been spot on this year, who does think yields have peaked and are going lower, um, didn't say that about rates. There's a big difference between bond yields and, yield, and rates. He thinks that these expectations of lower rates in the future are a little bit optimistic. I don't disagree with Ira, but I think what's going to happen is the market's going to force the Fed with deflationary tendencies, plunging commodities, unemployment, um, and um, lower stock market and lower assets that the Fed will say, oh, well, these are deflationary forces in the leading way versus the problem is CPI and all the measures and PPI are all lagging. Yes. The leading measures are breaking down hard. Just look at housing, uh, five-year, five-year forwards, Fed, the, the, the curve, unleaded gas demand, everything is pointing. The key missing link is still commodities are still expensive. But to me, that's the problem. And that's what's changed from when I, since I've been in the trading pit since the 80s. The Fed's not here to save you anymore um, and when things get bad, at least for now. But we're not into the bad stage yet. We need to have, as I heard one economist say, we need to have maybe a good year of average non-farm payrolls dropping 100,000 a month. You know, we're starting losing jobs. And unfortunately, the Fed has made that clear. We need pain. And this is just the beginning. And how quickly do you think we will get that pain? Because it seemed that sharp slowdown is just around the corner for for nearly a year now. But growth has remained stubbornly, not high, but stubbornly not recessionary uh, in the face of rising inflation. And it just goes to show, you know, Yet, yet mortgage applications are, are down, car, car loans. There's a lot of leading oh, yeah. indicators, yeah. but the unemployment rate is still yeah. at 3.7%. So sort of yeah. how, what's your sort of time span here? 
It doesn't. I think by this time next year, our narrative, when we have this conversation, Jack, we'll be talking about enduring deflation. When is the Fed going to ease? How much they're going to ease? Um, if we can ever, you know, when's the, the uptick in unemployment going to stop? Um, and how are we going to save this? But we still might have, you know, high inflation numbers. The key thing is the, the key bottom line at this stage is the leading indicators of markets should kick in. And by the end of this year, if we get off through this phase and Com compared to where we are right now, the S&P 500 at 3,800, if it's higher, and the NASDAQ at 1,100, amen, that would be wonderful. It's very unlikely they can drop another 20%. That's not me saying that's the Fed. <laughs> I mean, if, and if they don't drop, Fed's going to keep tightening. It's just, yes. That's the lose-lose. Now, as far as how long it's going to take, this is part of, to me, the enduring period of um, morbid economic growth. They're way overdue. And it's just classic Classic historic, historic pump, then dump, booms, then bust. They always come on the back of too much liquidity that's kicking, then taken away. I just recently read the book, um, just as a reminder, that's stuff I've known anyhow. And the key question I ask myself is what stops this? And the number one thing you need to see, first of all, is lower plateau. And we know when markets really get oversold, and they're clearly just going lower orderly, um, at least to see the the Fed to start pumping liquidity, and they're nowhere near that. Um, but typically, the, the problem is at this stage, all that really matters from those of us who, you know, talk about running money is risk assets probably have to go lower. I don't see what saves them. Mike, that's an interesting, convincing argument you made about the price of oil in 2007. If I could just flip down on its head, though, if the price of oil, I think, peaked at $140 in the summer of 2008, doesn't that mean that adjusted for inflation, that's more like $180, $190, even $200 yeah. now? So why, why can't the, the price of oil go, go there? Also, you know, we were already in a recession. The recession started, according to the MBER, either uh, the, I think December 2007 or January 2008. So many months, you know, many seasons, two, two seasons into a recession, the price of oil peaked. So it's not as if the, the historical uh, uh, the history supports. Oh, as soon as you have a recession, commodity prices fall. Right? It's you, you, commodity prices can peak during in a recession. So, do you think we're already in a recession? And like, how many months in? Um, I think globally, yes. That can't really trust China, Europe clearly, um, U.S. Not we're kind of bouncing around, but we're clearly heading there. And what would you describe about um, crude oil as that massive deflationary force of the world's most significant commodity? Um, and yes, an inflation dust and basis, CPI or PPI should be much higher. And that's what I like to point out to people. This is a bear market that just bounced. The peak was 145 in, in July 2008. Um, the peak this year was 130. That's a lower price. <laughs> Even though it's you know, six to uh, sorry, 14 years later, and we use, you know, it's more significant. Um, and the peak, the bottom is probably going to be who knows where, but I think it's going to be similar to past bottoms. It has to get cheap. Um, the point is, if it doesn't, it's going to accelerate this or uh, accentuate this process of the world tilting towards recession. So that's just part of the narrative. That's just one of those sore thumbs I look at. And I see, well, there's a problem that should go down. And I look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin's quite low now, relatively. It's just a question of where that bottoms um, and goes back to the enduring upward trend. That's the key difference. So the key thing I like to point out is elasticity of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Inversely, all commodities, there's this factor of elasticity. Prices go up, you create more of it, you use less of it. Now, I come from a farm background. I own farms, um, actually from Chicago, but just always 
had access to farms and farmers. Um, and that's a key thing you learn there is, you, you know, and prices really will dictate what you plant and when and where. Um, and that elasticity of supply and demand is very much of a pressure factor for commodities, most notably crude oil. As you pointed out, it should be much higher on a cost on a uh, inflation adjusted basis. But it's not the case in the two key cryptos. Bitcoin and Ethereum have definable diminishing supply and they have increasing demand and adoption. Something has to change. You can't change the, the supply because it's by code and certainly with the upgrade to Ethereum, but you can change the adoption and, and, and demand. And I don't think that's gonna increase. So by de definition, price must go up over time. Prices will continue to go back up. It's just a um, question of um, when that happens. Right now we're in that GM3FO stage. We interrupt this program with breaking news. Algorand is hosting an event in Dubai from November 28th through November 30th, and I am going to be there. Decipher 2022 is a gathering of investors, developers, and founders featuring deep dives on blockchain's most important topics, interoperability, DeFi, sports, gaming, and the metaverse. You need to be there. Think about it. You're going to be coming from Thanksgiving. Your family members are going to be wondering why you won't stop talking about the Federal Reserve. This is exactly what you need to stay in the most beautiful city in the world and meet and learn from leaders in the blockchain industry. By the way, if you are there, I will talk macro with you. So get a ticket today and come hang out with me in Dubai. Tickets are available now at decipherevent.com. And for a limited time, you can use code decipherfam22 for a discount on your pass. That's decipherevent.com. There is a live stream, so if you can't be there in Dubai, you can watch it remotely. However, there are certain things you'll only get to know if you're there in person, such as, will I remember to bring Sunblack? If you ask me about how the reverse repo facility actually works, will I pretend to know the answer, or will I be honest and say I have no clue? Decipher is hosted by Algorand, the world's most secure, scalable, and sustainable blockchain. Founded by Silvio Macaulay, the co-inventor of Zero Knowledge Proofs, Algorand recently partnered with FIFA to launch FIFA Plus Collect, the league's official NFT marketplace. With the World Cup going on in Qatar at this time, there are sure to be a ton of eyes and attention on that. So clearly there is a lot going on, not just for the Algorand ecosystem, but in the region more generally. So go to decipherevent.com. It's going to be a great event, and I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back to the interview. Yeah, so oil demand can only grow as, as a percentage of the, the global GDP growing, unless the, the economy gets actually, more. Actually, that, more it's actually, as a percentage of GDP, oil demand is declining over time. As, as a, yes, um, but, but GDP is going up. So oil, oil demand has gone up, right? We haven't reached peak oil demand. So, so we have in the U.S. So here's one thing I enjoy about maybe having um, used to have when I used to have hair. <laughs> is I was running commodities at S and P 2000 and what was it? I think seven through 12. And I remember the narrative back through like the big run up before the plunge in 2008 was peak supply. You know what peaked? U.S. liquid fuel consumption peaked in 2005. Now it bounced up a little bit, but it's been declining regularly since. On the back of one key fact, efficiency and demographic shifts. Mm -hmm. Now we have this major shift towards EV. I have an EV. I ride my electric bike to work. I had solar panels in my house. It's early days. The rest of the world, yes, India and China are catching it, but they're India and China is switching EVs really fast. And many places are getting cheaper. Um, and it's once you buy one, you realize how much easier it is. You don't have to go to gas station. Just plug it at home. Um, that was what was wrong. And that's what I think people get wrong. And that's the thing that the, the uh, Malthusians got wrong in the eight, 19, early 19th century is that, oh, we're too, population is growing and we can't feed them. 
don't underestimate human innovation and technology. And that's the key thing we're in the cusp of right now. Jeff Booth points out in his book in The Price of Tomorrow. And I see it in all commodities. I see it in grains and I see it in most notably in crude oil that we can create more of it for less every day. So here's a good example. The last time we had a major crisis in grains was the great grain robbery in 1972-73 when Soviet Union had some major issues and they came in and bought a lot of grains. And they were able to do it quietly before the market figured it out. Back then, the corn average corn yield per acre of corn was half of what it is now. It's doubled that. So that one acre of land that would produce, used to produce maybe 80 bushels, 90 bushels, that same acre produces 172 bushels now. Same acre of land. What's different? We actually use less fertilizer, better seeds, better technology, better um, techniques. I didn't know that, that, that they use less fertilizer now. That, that's interesting. So, but by global, so yes, U.S. Uh, liquids, you, everything you, you said. But what about global crude oil demand? Pure the raw barrel. I'm not talking about the distillates. Okay. Yeah, so global, global crude oil demand has been rising, as you'd expect, but at a declining pace for quite a while. And this is something I pointed out in China, global GDP. And yes, part of when you have emerging markets, sure, they're going to um, shift more from you know riding and walking and, and ox carts and bicycles to motor vehicles. Um, but that incremental demand has been climbing, declining at a greater pace than supply. Now, the key thing is, yes, we're at a bit of a bottleneck this, this year. People point out how supply is not coming back on because ESG um, things like that mm-hmm. and stuff but it kind of misses out the major rules of of, um, of Adam Smith and the free market hand and that's I'll point out the fact is right now in the world's largest producer of crude oil which is the US include Canada it's massive and massive surplus US and Canada versus um, uh, production versus consumption um, the price to produce a barrel of crude oil is about a half as much as you see on the screen. So sure, in the short term, you're going to see limits because of ESG and you know some of these silly things from the Biden administration limiting the ability for people to drill and then complain and complain why they won't drill. Um, but the, from a farm background, background, when you own land, you find ways to produce um, produce. Um, crude oil. The problem is it's also the macroeconomic. Right now, demand destruction is overwhelming. And that's just kicking in. Um, so. And how, so the ESG narrative, uh, the, the bullish case for oil based on the ESG narrative is that uh, lots, many investors are investing in funds that will not touch oil, natural gas, let alone coal, anything, in some cases, not even nuclear. Um, and as a result, you know, maybe Exxon has enough money to drill a well, but uh, any oil company that's you know needs to to get bank funding or issue stock is going to have a really tough time to do so. So that you know, they uh, investors are looking for shareholder discipline, so they're looking to get some dividends, some buybacks instead of using it for exploration. You know, when you were working at S and P, uh, the two thousand nine to two thousand thirteen, that period was marked by we're gonna. Uh, get money from private equity, we're going to get money from Wall Street, and we are going to get as much natural gas and oil out of this we can possibly can. And don't worry about, like, they, they would have a similar outlook to it in, you know, in growth tech now, where it's like profit, don't worry about profit. It's all about growth. Uh, and now the narrative has, sh- has shifted, and the, the priorities of hydrocarbon exploration companies are on profitability rather than growth, and that that will, as a result, uh, su- uh, the supply will be more inelastic. In other words, when the price of oil is at $120, 
companies could double their production from year to year. Now they wouldn't be so quick to do so because they're more conservative. So it sounds like you think that you think there's something to that narrative, but you're not entirely convinced. Oh, it works in the short term, but I, I do enjoy that narrative. Oh, Mike, enjoy the completely ignore those rules of free markets and Adam Smith. And I won't. It's just, it's just a simple fact is once you get that heating oil bill, that's three times the price from the year before and what's happening in Europe, you go say, OK, yeah, fine. So much for global warming. We might have to lay, lay low a little bit. And, and yes, technology will help that. But we kind of need some fossil fuels and we can do it here cheaply like the um, you know, by the time we air this, I think one of the key races will be the governor's race in the state of New York. And when they, one of the issues is maybe we can open up our land to natural gas and drilling and fracking and pipelines because we're sounding like Europe and they have a problem. And by the way, there's a war on and just opening up some of our natural resources might prevent a lot of people from dying <laughs> and starving and freezing. We're at that stage now. So that's the key thing. Just like the lessons we learned in too much liquidity prices, too much um, inflation, too much pushing back on free markets and fossil fuels and the ability to drill and create fossil fuels and just to keep ourselves from dying in the winter is pushing back a little. And that's why you're going to see a major push towards Republicans and drill at will and back to those, um, those steps. But just don't forget, there's hundreds of of independent oil companies, most notably in this country, and um, they just want to make money, obviously within laws and within environmental constrictions, um, and prices on the screen right now will allow them to do, be very profitable. And even selling forward a year or two in the futures curve, you can do that and lock in profits and be very profitable. So don't ever ignore them and the rules of Adam Smith and um, um, free markets. And that's the lesson I learned from being told that crude oil um, supply peaked. And that's the lessons that Malthusians got wrong. Yes. Well, the peak oil argument on a historical basis has not had a good track record. Let, let's put it like that. Um, Mike, how would you, uh, what are you looking at in terms of the forward curve where the, the, the price of current uh, oil is more expensive than oil in the future? Yeah. That's called backwardation. Why is that typically yeah. a bullish sign? It was very bullish earlier this year, but now is it's kind of weakening. And, and yeah, what, what are you... What'd you say? So the key thing, remember, backwardation is not normal. Um, yeah. There used to be this narrative called the normal backwardation. Well, that maybe was before commodity indices came out and ruined that. Um, but the key thing, remember, is contango is normal. When you have the current price at, say, $100 a barrel and the, four, the price a year from now at $106 a barrel, that represents what it costs to store that and to finance it. That is normal. And that's not a prediction of higher price. But when you have backwardation, particularly when you get a very extreme backwardation, which you, like we saw this year, very often is a sign of peak prices. And I've pointed this out a lot. This happens a lot in natural gas. It's clearly happening in crude oil. It's been my key premise this year that this backwardation this year will put the peak in prices. So the key thing right now is you look at the front WTI crude oil contracts around $89 a barrel. When we started talking, it was $90. That's how things fast are moving today. You look out to December 23, it's at $78 a barrel. That's because of just the normal process of markets expect, okay, prices are high now. They're going to bring on the supply. And so we're going to reduce the demand. It's going to go down in the future. It's been right. Backwardation is typically right. It's almost, it's been a very good predictor of lower prices. Condango is not a predictor of higher prices. And to me, that's the key thing I've been pointing out this year. It's not profound at all. 
I don't think, to get, expect crude oil to go back to 50 or $60 a barrel, particularly as the world heads towards global recession. Like I said, our economics team says that 100%. And the forward curve is kind of getting there anyhow. It's just not there completely. So this is one of the cases I think the forward curve is quite good. I think it's quite accurate in corn. It's, it's pointing out we're going to have massive supply coming on. Um, and crude oil is the most important. Natural gas has been a great indicator. When the price popped up to around 10 this year, the current, the price a year from now was, I always look at one-year curve, by the way, one-year curve because there's no seasonality. If you take anything mm -hmm. less or more, then one year gets seasonality. And there's lots of seasonality in commodities. So Dees, dees is one key thing you look at, but natural gas was a great indicator. So on the screens right now, it's six dollars per MMB. You remember the first time we traded that price? I think it was 1997. It got as high as 15. This year, it's got as high as 10. The average cost of production this year for natural gas is two, and it's six on the screen. And this, we have a massive oversupply. Yes, we're trying to export as much as we can to Europe, but we can export only so much. And if you include Canada there, there's a lot. If we add New York, eventually, if New York figures it out, then maybe we should help the world, save the world from tyranny by opening up our natural resources. Um, then that price will just go down. But that's a key thing they've learned about natural gas the last few years. There was a lot of scaremongering in 2005 and eight, and they've all been wrong. Prices is lower. The average price the last year has been around three to four um, bucks. And this right now, it's six. And this is as we're heading towards winter. Typically, that's when you get peaks. But I think markets are realizing that um, the demand destruction is significant. And the supply, in this case, in this country, is just coming on. And usually, those higher prices bring on that more supply. We're almost completely full with storage. Actually, we have to be by this time of year. Um, but the last few months of storage, was the, the pickup was the greatest pace ever. And our data goes back to about 30 years on that. I thought that backwardation was thought to be a mildly bullish sign. Clearly, you disagree, and you're, 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 the, expert, but you're the expert here. Uh, when people talk about tight markets, isn't that typically yeah. referring to backwardation? And isn't tight markets a sign that demand is robust? When you're running up in prices into backwardation, that's your bullish sign. But typically, as I point out, when you get to an extreme in backwardation, which we did this year, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, I think it was the most backwardated ever if you took an average of all the prices. Crude oil is like the most backwardated in 20 years. Natural gas is pretty backwardated. When you get to those extremes, that's the trigger. And that was what I, I started writing about about a few months ago. Yeah, it was early, but that's my job to be early. My job is to think a year ahead minimum. Um, and right now, thinking about the next few months, because as we speak, Bitcoin just broke below $18,000. Uh, $18, but um, yeah, so, um, but yeah, that's the key thing. I mean, Dennis Gartman used to say, never say don't, Dennis Gartman is a really astute commodity um, um, uh, researcher. I read his stuff forever. I know him. He's a friend. Um, but he used to say never sell backwarded market. I, I like to point out here's how I can sell where backwardation is just part of that trigger that flips commodities back to what they always do. They're one of the most mean reverting assets on the planet because of supply and demand at last 50. Like I said, why is crude oil right now the same price as 2007? It's got as high as one. 45. It's got as, high, as low as negative 30. And here we are back. We just fluctuate. It's just trying to measure that pendulum. And, and streams and backwardation container are sometimes good ways to help try to pick tops or pick bottoms, which is kind of my job. Where's the extremes? Where's the extreme of that bell curve of trading? And right now, we're kind of near the, the apex. But I think the apex is going a little bit. Actually, the apex of the bell curve trading since 2015 has been $50 a barrel. That's the um, highest volume traded price. That's the way I look at it. Is where's the bell curve trading? And then you look at the wings and try to determine. We got to a pretty good wing this year. We got to a really low wing, lower wing two years ago. Got to a really high wing this year. We're going back to that curve. It's just 
trading the pendulum. Thanks for clearing that up. So what's bullish is when a market is entering backwardation or is backwardated and is getting more backwardated because front month prices are rising more quickly than latter month prices. But what's happening now where prices are falling and short month futures uh, are falling more quickly and it's getting less backwarded, that is bearish. Because Well, the reason I published it on a few months ago, and it's one of those things that I deliberately take the risk of being very early because this is what I see coming, and I don't think the market sees it yet. It's made me lose my hair, but that's my job. You need to look forward to this. I mean, I, I was pointing out in 2019 the potential that we're going to get to that point where um, unleaded gas is going to get too expensive and, and do what it did before, create the demand destruction way too early. But And this chart, which you might be bringing, bring, there you go. This one, I, I actually published on this a few months ago, and I just reiterated and republished it because, hey, it's one of those things I have to remind, when I get things wrong, I try to, you know, not repeat it. When I get it right, I want to, you know, and it's going that way. I want to, you know, remind um, and see where it's going, what it matters. When you get thing wrong, things wrong, you have to think out as a trader. Stop yourself out, move on, what does it mean, and try to readjust. In this case, what you see there is the most backwardated um, Bloomberg Commodity Index. That's all 24 commodities in the Bloomberg Commodity Index um, on average. Most backwardated ever, rolling over at the same time prices and CPI were. Um, and then you see, typically, it's in contango. The average contango for Bloomberg Commodity Index is around 2 to 3%. That means, on average, it's going to cost you actually 4 to 5% to hold Bloomberg commodities over time. You can't get over the storage. That's the key thing to remember about commodities. Other than gold, and that's where Bitcoin's really attractive. There's no cost of storage. But that's what you see in the chart. And I fully expect we're going to go down as fast as we went up. And why shouldn't we? Here's one reason we should, and that is because I'm not showing on this chart, but we've had the biggest pump in liquidity ever. Money supply in the U.S. jumped 40%. Now it's collapsing. Global money supply is actually down almost 5% on a five-year basis. It's the lowest in our measure in a long time. You see um, some of that measure there. But it's, it's that um, – what, remember what got us here is going away, and that's the key thing to remember is the pump – followed by the dump, and we're in the middle of the dump stage. The difference this time, um, and that, that chart's a pretty good one, I think. This, this is showing um, the, um, commodities going down and Fed rate hike expectations going up. That means, so commodities are going down because they're heading global economic growth, supply and demand elasticity is pushing them lower, they got too expensive. Despite that, the Fed is actually increasing tightening. That's just not happened in our lifetimes. It's not happened. I think I went back, it was in the 70s, early 70s, a few cases we had that um, and made sense, um, but it's different now. So that's to me is what's going to change. Commodities will pull that Fed rate high expectations lower. And the key thing is the trajectory is still higher for rates. It's, it's got to at least stop and maybe even go lower for forward rates. But the key thing is what stops commodities from going lower? World's heading towards recession. China, the former um, source of the biggest demand, is in a major property crisis, and its leader is becoming more and more dictatorship, um, more autocratic, which is pushing things backwards. It's becoming more like the Mao, um, the Mao uh, dynasty or the Ming dynasty, and uh, the Fed's tightening as we head towards a recession. So that's where we're at this stage right now. It's, it's hopium. Um, I just point out facts: is um, assets have, probably have to go lower to reduce these inflation expectations. It wouldn't really push them all up. Remember, we had a good reason for inflation. We pumped so much liquidity in the system because of the fear of this plague pandemic. Plague sounds easier. And a little more poetic, what happened? Yeah. Remember two years? Yeah, well, two years ago, we didn't even have vaccines. Now we do. What, who didn't do that well? China. 
<laughs> Why? Because their system doesn't allow it, and ours did. And you know, just the, the checks and balances and the and the and the discourse we have allowed it to happen. Um, their system is one person tells everybody what to do more and more and every day. It's not shining more. It's Mr. Z. And that's part of that's part of the bear's case for commodities. This great chart you have shows the Chinese stock market in white relative to the Bloomberg Commodity Index in orange. And that 2001 to 2008, I mean, it just fits like a glove where China yeah. uh, joins the World Trade Organization and you know China yeah. starts demanding tons of coal, yeah. oil, copper, as much as it can get its hands on, huge commodity bull markets. And yeah, it remains you know somewhat correlated. Now this chart is showing that uh, the, stock, the Chinese stock market has collapsed, uh, but commodities remain well bid, admittedly, from a, you know, a peak a, a few months ago. Uh, yeah, tell us, how bad do you think the demand situation in China is? And then also, what do you see it going forward? Because if the demand situation is bad now, but it's at the bottom, demand is bottom, then it's pretty bullish for commodities. But uh, yeah, I mean, how, how, you, know, you, you speak to a lot of smart folks at the Bloomberg Intelligence team who are very plugged into China. What's going on? My Bloomberg Intelligence team, the latest on Chinese property crisis, it needs to drop another 25%. It's very rare um, that we all kind of align in, in as strategists. And this was a big issue I had starting in 2008. My signals for this, what's happening now, started in 2008. And I'm sorry, 18. And I, I had some pushback from some of my fellow colleagues. They were right. I was too early. Uh, but now we're all aligned um, almost completely. Uh, our Jersey, our, our interest rate strategy expects interest um, yields have peaked. Our key Chinese strategist, Tom Oreck, who um, wrote the book, um, The Bubble that Never Pops at China, says it's popping. <laughs> our latest strategists point out that 25% correction. We are all aligned now that this is something significant. Yes, they might come out of COVID, but remember, we have, it's not China, it's one person running that um, country. Um, and that's the key thing. You look at that chart, what's the sore thumb? Commodity prices. Um, and what stops that from happening? Maybe significant global economic expansion and Fed easing and central banks breaking off and breaking and, and providing tons of liquidity. Done, it's not happening. So I don't see any upside. Now, covering from oversold, sure, you got to bounce that. Uh, you know, we had the recent bounce in, um, I think we're showing that which Chinese uh, index is that, um, MSCI China. Um, sure, we had a bounce recently, but what's going to save that other than the Chinese government? I mean, the whole world knows you can't invest there anymore. And that was key thing that happened with the Trump wars in China. When we heard how Z treated the U.S. as an enemy, I think anybody in the world who does business with China realize, okay, you're going to treat us as an enemy, fine. We can find other places to get labor cost effectively. Remember the Macleodoros in, in Mexico, and we can use technology. We don't need to be dealing with an unreliable and potential enemy. And the key, the key thing I think that it really was the trigger this year, when, when President Z cozied up with Putin right before the war in support of the war, that was a key trigger for every single Western business to say, we don't want to do anything with China. And they shouldn't. I mean, it's just a classic question from your six-year-old daughter if you're doing business in China. I mean, they get it. So that changed. That's, that trend since you know the last 20 years is over. I think every company in this country that's doing business is trying to not do business and finding other ways for supply chain. Um, and it's just the, their shift from global economic expansion to security. That's what Z has pointed out. Um, okay, fine. We'll move on. Um, but that demand, the bottom line is the Communist Party in China pushed a billion people into poverty and then pulled them out. Um, Deng was one of the main person, took people, you know, the average 
per capita income was $3,000 and it jumped up to almost 30,000. But getting to the same as Taiwan, which is around 55,000 in per capita income is a big hurdle now. Getting from three to 30, that was, a, you know, that was okay. Cause there, that was just logical because people were just in poverty, but now it's the next stages. And it re- reminds me of a combination of the Soviet Union and collapse of Soviet Union and peak Japan in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, all combined in one. And clearly the case is that China leadership is going more towards the model of North Korea than the model of Singapore. That's just a fact of what's happening, but it's also been overdue. We've been pointing out this declining incremental demand for a while. Our economists are all pointing out, um, what, yeah, maybe we'll get lucky, maybe a change of leadership, maybe a complete shift to a more capitalist system that it can respond, but there's no way. I mean, why do they steal intellectual property? Why don't they have vaccines? Because the system does not allow it. It's all completely driven by one person now and one person more every day. It's just not the, not a, an engine of economic growth and demand pool for commodities that we saw the last 20 years. So where's that demand pool coming from? Not the U.S., not Europe. I, I, I asked an open question. And so the Chinese Communist Party's ability to fund and drive through uh, um, supply-driven growth has been very successful. If you look at Chinese GDP, uh, Chinese, Chinese income, as you mentioned. However, yeah, that the Chinese demand story that Chinese is going to Chinese middle-class consumers are going to be consuming a lot of goods and services that really has uh, s- struggled. Why, why do you think that the the sort of Chinese demand story has been so weak? Plateau. Classic plateau. Getting from average per capita income around three thousand to almost thirty thousand, it's a plateau, and the system is completely shifted now. I mean, unemployment's picking up. Average, I think it was twenty. I, Bloomberg um, New Energy Finance team pointed out the, there was twenty twenty percent of automobile sales last year were EVs. I mean, they're not using the um, as much petroleum. Um, but it's also the peak system. The stuff we saw with the Soviet Union that collapsed, it didn't work out. The stuff we saw with the peak um, with the um, Nikkei when it peaked around 40,000 in 1990, it's all just classic normal stuff, normal cyclical stuff. And then the bottom line is the leadership. I mean, it's not a, it's not an open, there's no dialogue. It's when you, the minute, I mean, I remember reading this years ago when, when Z came in and said, we're going to complete, you know, eliminate corruption. You know what that means. Anybody who disagrees with you is gone. So that, that I mean, it's not just my view. That's just state the view from all the economists, most of our economic team. The property crisis was classic um, and how they're going to get out of it. Good luck. You can see they, the um, the required reserve ratio has been declining forever. Interest rates are declining and currency starting to roll over. And, and it's just a, 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 right now it's a cycle. I don't know. See what stops it. And what do they typically do? They're an export driven economy. Where are they going to export? Europe, U.S.? both heading towards recession. It's lose, lose, lose for asset prices. Right. And earlier you referenced that the Chinese stock market has had an abysmal year, abysmal year and a half, but there was a uh, a rally from oversold conditions over the past week and a half. That that rally was accompanied by rumors that the Chinese zero COVID policy is over, that China will reopen. Are those just rumors or is there a a seed of truth to it? Hopium. Hopium. That's one thing you remember about trading is, and being in the trading pits is, um, it's not. It's, I love how fundamental analysts always try to explain each move. It's positions. <laughs> the market was so short. So I was pointing this out in um, in crude oil and open interest dropped so much last week in, in Brent is because people were short. So it just triggered short. So sometimes you just need a trigger. That's hopium. Also, remember sometimes a lot of people are out to 
support their own positions. If you can start a rumor to support your position and make money, I mean, that never happens in cryptos. <laughs> it's just, just don't underestimate how people will try to manipulate things to make money, at least in the short term. The macro big picture is oftentimes, and never forget this, bear markets take money from everybody and the biggest rallies come in bear markets. They need to rip your face off. They make you lose your hair, ex-trader, and then they go back to the trend. But oftentimes you don't get enduring down markets until you flush out, you take out those shorts because that's the key thing that's been happening in the US stock market. Virtually everybody I speak to now, a year ago was not bearish. And now everybody gets it. We're heading towards recession, the Fed's tightening. You gotta sell rallies or you have structured positions that'll make money if you're short. So that position gets overloaded, they, that short position to create the bid, you got to flush them out and then you go down. It has to be as difficult as possible. Um, never one thing to remember about markets is if it's easy, something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, price first, narrative second, always. Mike, I would putting up a chart now, which is the phenomenon you were talking about. The orange line is the price of oil. The, the white line yeah, is the open yeah. interest that is you know, levels of futures positioning. Why is it, you know, I've, I've been hearing about how liquidity in financial paper oil, so to speak, has been very poor. Why has that been so poor? And, and why do you see that as a harbinger of a bearish price action? Oh, volatility. Um, bear markets are always more volatile. Um, is volatility um, and also uncertainty. But what you see there is one thing that's never happened really in my time frame in trading bull markets and bear markets commodities. Almost always the mantra is when markets are trending, particularly when they're trending higher, higher futures open opens interest is always following or leading that. That's what's different this year. As you see that big drop, that's just futures open interest for Brent, Brent crude, the global benchmark. It plunged last week. Now, yes, there was an absent, there was an expiration, a contract rolled all over, we went from Deese to Jan, but you know, everybody knew that. And it, so that's part of the reason I wrote that article that, okay, I think this is a sign 100 uh, resistance. This is where I have the battle sometimes with the fundamental guys versus the technical guys. I'm everything. And that is just a sign to me of a market that's going to revert and go down hard as fast as it went up, maybe faster. That's not profound. That's what it always does. Futures markets are showing that what that shows you is short covering. It doesn't show you new bull market, new positions, enduring positions, people getting in and getting long. And it's usually way, that's just a rule I learned in the trading pits. Um, it's not a healthy market when you see that. And uh, you know where I see a healthy market? There's only one market, a significant market with rapid, pretty significant increasing listed futures open interest, and that's Bitcoin. Now, um, because it's, you know, if you measure from 2019, it's still very new and listed, but it's nowhere near the amount of open interest that trades um, off the listed exchanges on the, uh, you know, the, the, the crypto exchanges. But there, what I see there is a, a what has been a good bounce in, in WT and sorry, in, in Brent, that's more likely to go lower. And the white line is the open interest showing you that um, there's less and less participation. There's really not endorsement of these higher prices. And in this environment, yeah, do you think bond yields have peaked? Yes. So I do. Ira has. I've been early. I've been wrong, um, but I do think this is going to be one of the most enduring bullish bond market buy opportunities ever. Bitcoin, gold, and long bonds. I'll put that in the other order. Long bonds, gold, and Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is eventually going to break away from that risk on asset towards a risk off asset like bonds and gold. And I think they'll be some of the best performing um, assets as we head to an enduring deflationary period. And a lot of people are looking for stagflation. They would not do in a stagflation environment by fully 
discredit that. I think it's very unlikely. It's way underestimating technology and, and what's been happening in the 10 years before COVID, which I don't think changed. And that's just technology is such a pressure factor for inflation. I like to use the example of let's just look at the world's most significant commodity. Right now on the screens, it's $89 a barrel. The first time it traded that price was in 2007, 15 years ago. U.S. was the largest importer on the planet. Now, the average cost of crude oil, the average cost to produce crude oil in this country is about $40 a barrel. I data only goes back to 2017. It was $70 a barrel back then. That's just rapidly advancing technology, creating more. We use less. And that's just a basic, the most significant commodity. Cryptos, to me, represent that, that um, rapidly advancing technology, particularly Bitcoin and Ethereum. But right now, we're in that stage where, um, as I said earlier, GMTFO. So now that I feel like I and the audience fully understand your macro framework for the economy, let's apply that to gold and Bitcoin. So you've got a chart of the PMIs uh, relative to uh, you, you get a chart showing just how slow the economy is slowing. And basically when, when PMIs go down, that inflation falls as a result, commodity prices fall as a result. But uh, what is the relationship between Bitcoin and falling PMIs when the economy is slowing? How does Bitcoin historically perform? And yeah, how does that shape your outlook? So for, first to explain this chart, this is a um, lead and one of the best leading indicators that David Ro Rosenberg, I'm a big, big fan of his, pointed out in a, in a Twitter um, chart is the prices paid for um, um, by manufacturing PMI. It's a good leading indicator of inflation. It's plunging. I mean, it's below 50. That means prices are going negative. Yet the inflation in measures are still very high. They're very much lagging and measure, measure things like owner's equivalent rent, which will plunge once housing prices plunge, which they have started to do. It's just such a lagging factor. Mm -hmm. The thing about Bitcoin is it's really not a direct factor in Bitcoin. We don't have data going back far enough. So when people say like Bitcoin is not a good inflation hedge, okay, well, it's outperformed every single asset on the planet for since its lifetime. And it's only been around for what, 14 years. So that's kind of not long enough. You need a good 30, 40 years of time frame. But the key thing I like to um, point out with gold and Bitcoin is um, the bottom line is Bitcoin is rapidly replacing gold in the world for that space. Um, it's coming to digital version gold. Like anybody else going to be your age or anybody under 35 about gold, boomer rocks. They're more exposed. They're more interested in Bitcoin, Ethereum, and like the, a, an index of cryptos. Um, but the key thing, so I like to say is if you're an investor and you want to buy gold involved in gold, central banks, you kind of are at greater risk if you're not adding a little Bitcoin to that space and you got to have some Ethereum too. That's just where things are going. Um, the bottom line is though, gold will always, has always been a good inflation hedge in terms of its currency. So it's not doing so well this year in terms of the dollar, but the dollar by some measures is Bloomberg dollar index is up 15%. In terms of the euro, gold has made a new high. In terms of the yen, gold has made a new high. It's done what it's supposed to. It's that stable store of value over time. I think the key thing is in a world going digital, you got to have some Bitcoin in that space. And Bitcoin's clearly replacing gold for what it used to be. I just look at it as, you know, some of these people who say, oh, I silly internet money. I'm like, yeah, sorry, but futures were pretty silly in the 70s when they first started taking over. And, and so were... Um, 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 EFTs in um, exchange traded ETFs, mm -hmm. sorry, exchange traded funds. Sorry, I'm just a little brain fart there for a second. Okay. And it's just mm -hmm. that rapidly developing technology. The key thing I like to point out from this space is getting to the end here is what 
is this space making happen? Um, Bitcoin becoming global digital collateral in the world going the way, but look at Ethereum. I mean, it's made possible the most widely traded cryptos on the planets are dollar tokens, crypto dollars, made possible by Ethereum and some other um, 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 blockchains too. But you can't mess with that. <laughs> I mean, why join? Why just join it? MasterCard and Visa are, and particularly as the U.S. regulators and legislators are figuring it out, that the world base for all currency is increasingly becoming the dollar, particularly through cryptos. The U.S. is not going to mess it up. China and Russia have a problem with it, but the world's organically gone to this space through this technology with the dollar as the base layer. Bitcoin is kind of the gold. And Ethereum tokens tracking crypto dollars is the major source of the, the transaction currency. Mm. Mike, thanks for thanks for for sharing that. Uh, I just want to ask you a question which no one can answer about the the short term. So, the, the this crypto news of a crypto company that had a quite a, in my opinion, a, a sterling reputation. As you said, people up until recently were referring to Sam Bankman-Fried of FEX as the sort of the J.P. Morgan of the space. The fact that they might be acquired. Uh, do you think that will change the attitude of regulators towards crypto and might it change in the short term investors uh, outlook towards crypto? And of course, the, with the caveat that no one really knows because this, uh, this story literally happened today and it's happening in real time. Well, the good news is my colleague, Nathan Dean, based in Washington, D.C., just wrote a headline, a story about this. He said the Binance FTX deal will, um, I mean, may throw a wrench into new U.S. regulatory framework, and partly because FTX was very kind of U.S. centric um, and positive and obviously a big donator to U.S. Um, uh, political um parties um, and Binance is considered a little bit outside the U.S. But it's a key thing I pointed earlier. This is space is so U.S. positive, particularly if China pushing back, particularly with the space organically adopting dollar, crypto dollars, people call them stale coins. But my, my colleague Nathan Dean wrote this, so he thinks it's a bit of a pushback. Um, I can't do all the details now, but it was good timing to put it on. The key thing I look at about is this deal is it really was a shock that um, FTX was not as stalwart of a firm as we thought. I mean, Stan Bankman-Fried, I went to the uh, SALT conference in the Bahamas, I think that was in March, and he was up, up on stage with Bill Clinton um, and Tony Blair, and it was quite profound. I guess that might have been his peak. Um, that was quite the statement, um, that this is in the space. And um, now that's being pushed to the wayside. So to me, this is part of the, the, the tide's gone out. We're seeing who's wearing clothes and cryptos are just the fastest, most unique space. And it's showing the uh, weaknesses in all markets. And that's why I think it's triggering this, this hit your stops in all assets. If, you know, if this fastest horse in the race, which looked like it was bottom, Ethereum still might hold around a thousand, but Bitcoin building that base around 20,000 looks like it might go a little lower now. This is a big wrench in that, you know, in those gears. Um, and the thing is, is what's more significant is what happens to the stock market and, and the Fed. And the good news is this might help finally lower the plateau for all risk assets, notably commodities. Like, as we speak in real time, crude oil is one of the first markets to go down. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's a risk asset. I mean, I remember being at a hedge fund. Was like, we didn't always compare about, even the trading pits, you don't always compare about the fundamentals. It's, what's that guy doing? Is he selling? Okay, why is he selling? Okay, I'll sell too. You know, <laughs> it's just the way markets work. Yeah. Um, but so that's why I see in the macro. 
And in terms of what you mentioned, my colleague wrote this article, but uh, I think um, overall, my bias remains the same as far as U.S. regulation is the U.S. will not mess this up. What does the space have? Money, votes, um, uh, pushes against China, um, jobs, um, some of the smartest people on the planet going into this space. Um, and it's, it's completely positive adopted the dollar as its base case. If the U.S. messes up that up, only U.S. can be blamed. I don't think we're just not that dumb. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for, for coming on, uh, sharing your insights. People who are lucky enough in this world to have a Bloomberg terminal should check out your work on BI, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and if, if not, they can find uh, uh, stuff you post on Twitter where you are at Mike McGlone 11. Mike, I want to ask, so you're one of my favorite uh, analysts on, on Bloomberg Intelligence. Who is someone other than yourself? Who's someone, an analyst on the Bloomberg Intelligence team who, who just whose work you really, really admire? Um, I have to give a shout out this year to Ira Jersey. He's our um, chief rate strategist. He crushed it. He nailed it. He was right. We had some disagreements last year. I was way too early and still I'm too early and he was right. And now he's calling for lower yield. So got to give credit to the hot hand. He's nailed it this year. Um, and he, I'm sticking, we're both agreeing. Um, also my colleague, Anna Wong, her quotes is hundred percent chance of recession in the U S and we're all kind of you know, I think the term I learned from Ira was plausible deniability. <laughs> I'm like, Ira, hey, I'm happy to admit when I'm wrong because that's some of the best ways to get over and move on. Why were you wrong? What can we do to to move on from that? But um, I think he's going to be right. And I think um, he might be wrong on the fact that I think at some point, Nori or Rubini says the Fed's going to wimp out. And I'm afraid they will have to wimp out because Marcus will make them by going down enough to make them do that. And I'm afraid of that. And Bitcoin's leading that right now. Mm, yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, that 100% chance of recession, that definitely caught my eyes. And it's like, you know, it's not someone on Twitter saying 100% chance. It's, you know, Bloomberg economics team. Uh, Mike, thank you so much. Uh, love to have you back anytime. Thanks, Jack. I'm on LinkedIn too. And I'm, I'm happy if people reach out, I'm happy to ask Adam to my distribution list. And I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Me too. Thanks. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, you can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. Uh, it's Podbean as in on this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Finally, BlockWorks is looking for a video editor. Go to blockworks.co slash careers to learn more. Thanks for watching.